Good morning. Think back to the most difficult situation you experienced as a teenager. As you look back, you may wish that that was the type of difficulty that you get to experience now. But that would not have been the case for Daniel. Daniel, as we've started this new series, has been exiled. He's removed from his homeland. He's been forced out of what's normal and comfortable, being trained and re-educated in a new way of life. His very identity is being uh, attempted and challenged to go somewhere else. But now, the most challenging experience is about to happen. His very life is on the line. If he doesn't respond, if God does not show up in the next 24 hours, his body would be dismembered and he would lose everything he's got. This story in Daniel chapter 2 is the story of Daniel, God's gracious showing up, Daniel's response, and God's character and nature in the midst of Daniel's exile. So let's open up Daniel chapter 2 and share the story. So Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the most powerful nation in the world, has a bad dream. Now for him, dreams weren't just because of what you ate the night before. Dreams were the God's way of communicating through him about what he was supposed to do next. Now this dream troubled him. So he calls in his, his advisors, the Chaldeans, the wise men and astrologers, to, and asks them something. But he doesn't just ask them what's supposed to be asked of astrologers. He asks them not just to interpret. He asks them to tell him the dream itself. Notice what the Chaldeans say in verse 10. He says, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. But Nebuchadnezzar does not change his minds. The Chaldeans are not able to do it. And Nebuchadnezzar issues a decree saying that all the wise men in his land are to be killed because of this. Now, Daniel and his friends are not in that conversation. They are told by one of the king's officials that that's about to happen. And so Daniel wisely, calmly, and courageously says, hey, goes to the king and asks for more time. And so he goes back to his friends and he says, hey, he, he in essence gets his prayer team together. And notice what it says in verse 18. He tells them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So the, their friends pray. God graciously answers. He shows up. He reveals not only the interpretation of the dream, but the dream itself to Daniel in a vision. And Daniel's response to this is a song of praise. And whenever you see poetry in the Old Testament, in the middle of a narrative, it's a key indicator for you to think that this is the main point of what we're trying to get across. This is the author's way of saying, highlight, asterisk, um, italicize, bold, underline, arrows all around it. This is what I'm trying to get at. And so in this poem, Daniel uses the term wisdom and mysis 
Bless God forever who belong wisdom and might. Verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives that wisdom and his um, to the wise. But then he ends the praise with not only does God just do that generally, God has done that specifically for us. I give you things, verse 23, for you have given me wisdom and might. And now have made known to me what we, my prayer team, asked for. So the next day, Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Now Daniel is, has a temptation here that's very subtle, but it has a significant impact on him his character, and what it means to be faithful. Because Daniel could have taken credit himself. Remember, his life is on the line. He could have made himself look better. Like, yes, I, I have the interpretation. I can give the king what he needs. But he doesn't take credit for himself. Notice what he says in verses 27 and 28. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. So I can't do this, Daniel's saying, nor can they do this. Verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Daniel is has the temptation in front of him to take credit and glory away from the God of heaven and apply it to himself. Make himself look better. And when we think of Nebuchadnezzar being the king that wants glory, that wants to be known, we see this throughout his reign when next chapter he builds a statue for himself and calls everybody to worship him. That that's the way that the kings and kingdoms of the world operate. That you are supposed to take credit, take glory. But Daniel is living according to a different kingdom. This isn't about his glory. This is about God's glory. Daniel, place of absolute need. God is necessary for him to show up. And he knows that there was no way around getting around what would have happened to me if it wasn't for God showing up in the in this. Now you and I could have that same temptation that God does something magnificent in our life and yet we can take credit for it. That's the um, most overt way of taking God, uh, credit and glory away from God. But there's also some subtle ways that you and I, when we're tempted to take glory away from God in exile. And that includes um, thinking about um, we may not even put ourselves in a position to be in need. Now think about this. We may love our comfort. We may love our peace. We may love our control. And so I want to have my life lined up so well that I'm not ever dependent upon anyone else, let alone God. And in doing that, we are robbing and stealing God from his glory because we're not putting ourselves in a place of dependence upon him where if he doesn't show up, then something's going to go bad for me. 
But when he does show up, he ultimately gets the glory. So we may not put ourselves in a place of need, and that robs God of glory. Sometimes it is in our own skills and abilities. We may want to over-exaggerate our gifts to make us seem more important. Or like Daniel's temptation, we may, something may be done through us that we want that credit for. We want people to notice us and point um, their fingers about how amazing we are. But the flip side, the more subtle version of this, is that we may diminish our skills and abilities as in, in order to appear humble. So we may say, oh, we're not, I'm not that important. I'm not that significant. My part in the body of Christ isn't important. And that just as much takes away the glory from God. You as an image bearer, uh, supposed to portray God's image when you diminish that. I mean, Matthew says to let your light shine before men so that they may praise your Father in heaven. But if you diminish your own light, your own role, that's just as much taking glory away from God. We may rob God of glory in our interaction with other people. When given the excuse me, the chance to interact with people who think differently, we have the temptation to respond in the ways of the world. We could be ridicule them, aggressively um, disagree with them, belittle them, demonize them. And in doing so, we're living according to the standards and ways of the world. And that is when not lived in the ways of God in his kingdom, God doesn't get the credit for that. People don't get to look at us and see our works and give praise to our Father in heaven. They get to see us as if we're just one of. There's not a distinctiveness. There's not a saltiness that comes with us following Jesus in that way. Daniel would not allow for this. Daniel, when he had the opportunity to take the credit, he gave the credit to God. When God graciously showed up and acted on his behalf, Daniel made sure that the king knew that it was not him that was at work. It was God who was at work. God gets the glory. And so Daniel goes on and he begins to interpret the dream um, to Nebuchadnezzar. Now the dream was of this magnificent statue, head of gold, arms and chest of silver going down to bronze and then the feet and even the toes it later on says was iron mixed with clay or was a, a less strong material. But there is this rock that was cut out not by human hands that came and crushed this statue. And the statue was so crushed that it diminished and it was not even recognizable anymore. So for you can see why Nebuchadnezzar would be troubled by this. Is he the one that's going to be crushed? But we find out in Daniel's interpretation that no, 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 this is... Nebuchadnezzar, calm down. You're the head of gold, okay? But the point of this, remember, the poetry was pointing us to something. The wisdom and might of God, the rock that was cut out not by human hands is the one that's ultimately in control. Daniel 
is showing Nebuchadnezzar that God is the one that's ultimately in control of not only his kingship and his kingdom, but of all the kingdoms that were to come. I mean, Babylon would be the goal. They were the the pinnacle of it all. But kingdoms coming after them would be inferior to them. Now, whether that's the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, whatever empire it is, the point is for us not to know which empire is which. The point for us is to know that God is the one in his wisdom and in his strength sets up kings and removes kings, sets up kingdoms and removes kingdom. It's based on his desire, his wisdom, and his strength that that happens. Now we need to remember that Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, while historical figures that Daniel is walking through, they become the paradigm and the picture for all human kingdoms that are in opposition to God and his ways. So every single king, every single kingdom would end up like Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. That's just the way that human history um, progresses. And we find ourselves in a very unique moment to be in this passage in that we are in an election style, uh, cycle excuse me, where a king is either going to remain or a, a ruler is going to remain or a new one is going to be in place. But we're also not just in a normal moment. As we've talked about, we have the social unrest that's causing a a, a tremendous amount of unease. We have economic concerns. We have the pandemic and the response to the pandemic that's fueling a lot of this. And what's happening is now with social media, we have and the frenzy and the news cycle you're able to go into an echo chamber which is only listening to people that you agree with not having an, a, a civil conversation and that's creating in our society more and more polarization now you may not be on the extremes by god's grace we are um at peace and we as we'll talk about in a moment we're able to function in the alternative way that is the kingdom of god but we're experiencing it we're engaging with it if you're on social media i can almost guarantee that you're seeing it you're experiencing it so what does it mean for us to flourish and be faithful in this moment every story has an arc um, every political ideology also has an arc. And we know this by creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. There's an origin story. There's the beginning of something. And these polarized um, perspectives, whether it's platform, it's a politician, whatever it may be, there is their creation narrative, their beginnings, their origins of what they are fueling. But then there's also the fall. There's This is the reason why things are not the way that they're supposed to be. There's a problem that needs to be fixed. Then the story goes to redemption. This is where the hero wins the day that the problem is fixed and restoration is the resolve this is the utopian society the life that we've longed for becoming a reality in these echo chambers and in this polarization you and i are being tempted to believe a narrative 
that is not the narrative of the Bible or of the gospel. Whether it's left or right, whatever it may be, there are narratives that are fueling that ideology. And it's causing them, and I'll, I'll emphasize one piece of it, Typically, it's in the fall that the other party or the other person or the other platform is not only wrong, but it's the source of evil. It is the problem in the world. And if we can get that out of the way, then we are able to thrive and flourish and live in the society that we've always longed for. Brothers and sisters, both of those narratives are false. Both of those are, are giving us an invitation and a temptation to place our um, hope and misplace our hope in something or someone that was never able to carry it. But it's also giving us an invitation to despair that on November 3rd or November 4th or whenever we receive the results of the, our elections, if our party or if our platform or if our politician does not win and if our hope is in ultimately that they are the ones that are going to fix the problem and this environment is heightening that need right now and heightening that sense that you and I or our friends that we're engaging with will be in ultimate despair. But it also is creating an invitation for complacency where you and I can wash our hands and say, it's not a big deal, God's in control. I don't need to pray because God already knows what I need. But it's through your prayers, it's through you that God shows up. He called you and me to be fruitful and multiply, but to engage the world, to be part of, to seek its goodness and its welfare. welfare. Daniel is showing us another way. Daniel is showing us and reminding us that it is God who is in charge, that all that's happening in our midst right now, they are all pawns in the game that ultimately God wins, that this moment will pass, but God's kingdom shall stand, it says. And ultimately, as Isaiah 11, 9 says, it's in his holy mountain for the earth shall be covered with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. There's a day coming where God's kingdom will be fully realized in our midst. And if our hope is not in a politician or a platform, but it's in God who sets up kings and removes kings, we can be a people at peace and that bring peace in polarization. We can be a people that extend love and give love when demonization is happening amongst the parties. We can love our enemy. We can pray for those who persecute us. We can live the life of flourishing that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount because we know that God is the one that's ultimately at work. The kingdom of God is not left, right, or center. It's on a completely other paradigm. It is not in a politician or a platform. It's ultimately in the person of Jesus. And our stories, brothers and sisters, results in God coming back, renewing, and restoring all the earth. So that is where our hope is in. So what does it look like for you to engage in faithfulness in the midst of this moment? 
How can you be a person of peace? How can you rest and put your hope in God, give him the glory, so that you can be an example to not only one another, but to a world, and they can see our good deeds, see our love for one another, see our ability to be at peace and unify, and then be able to give glory to our Father in heaven. That's our challenge. That's our invitation. And that's what Daniel 2 is inviting us to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this. Thank you that you are the one who gets the glory and you are inviting us to give you the glory. Thank you that your kingdom is being established. It is here among us, but one day it'll be consummated and it'll be fully realized. And we can place our hope in you and not be at despair in our moment. We can pray and love for our enemies because you did that very thing on the cross for us. So Spirit, I pray for the moments ahead in our gathering. I pray for the weeks ahead in our lives that you empower us in our need to graciously show up. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.